This is Guns and Butter. Now, David Cobb of the Green Party and I developed a friendship over the campaign. We were uh, willing to debate each other several times uh, in alternate party debates. David Cobb and I also tried to attend the presidential debate in St. Louis, and David Cobb and I were arrested, handcuffed, and taken to jail. Interesting story is the police officer opened the door of the van and said, which one of you is a presidential candidate? <laughs> and my response was, well, we are both presidential candidates. We are at a presidential debate, and you have us in handcuffs. Can you explain that to me? He says, let me get back to you on that. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, workshop summations from the Emergency Truth Convergence on July 24, 2005, which took place at American University in Washington, D.C. I was in attendance and am pleased to bring you excerpts from these events. The weekend workshops were part of a larger three-day event that brought together activists, authors, researchers, whistleblowers, and alternative media to expose and counter the government's most lethal lies and mainstream media complicity. The three-day truth convergence was staged on the anniversaries of two current icons of official deceit, the first anniversary of the Cain-Zellico 9-11 Commission report and the third anniversary of the Downing Street Memo. Speakers in today's show include Peter Phillips of Project Censored, Charles Key, former Oklahoma State Representative, Peter Bolton and Tito Hauer from the USS Liberty Alliance, and Michael Badnarik, Libertarian presidential candidate. Gabriel Day of 9-11, Share the Truth, is MC. Very proud to announce Dr. Peter Phillips, and I know he's best known for a project censored at Sonoma State University, but his real training is in the political sociology of power elites. Peter. Three-day conference that gets down to 50, 60 people. You're the core activists centered in values that want a better place in the world. And um, thanks for staying and being here. This afternoon, we're going to really focus on, to use an old term that Lenin wrote over 100 years ago, what is to be done, and where we're going, and the actions that, that we need to take, and some of the blockages. That's what this next hour is about, is some of, some kind of where we're stuck and what we need to work on. And then after that, we'll be breaking into groups, and then try to summarize, try to see what kind of direction and actions we can take. I wanted to frame it a little bit in the context of power, policy, and propaganda. And um, each of those are elements of what's traditionally been called the ruling elite in the United States. And we've had a ruling elite, an American corporate class, for certainly the last century, and going back into industrialization, and before that, different elites landed leases. And it's always been about groups of them forming policy at the highest levels. Council of Foreign Relations, the Heritage Foundation, the, the, the Hoover Institute, the Trilateral Commission, internationally the Bilderberger Group. Each of these are policy formation groups where elites are in fact setting agendas and building consensus about the direction 
the use of power needs to go. And there's always disagreements. There's always factions and feuds and disagreements within elites. And um, if we go back, say, to the 1930s, during the, the labor movement and the heights of unrest in, in, in 1934 and the general strike in San Francisco, which shut down the whole West Coast, and strikes in Minneapolis and, and other places that, that were dynamic. The National Guard was called out more times in that year than any, anything ever. And the, the, the elites were split. The DuPonts, the General Motors, and, and that they formed the Liberty Lobby, um, very, very much like what we see in terms of the neoconservatives and the PNAC today. And, but Roosevelt was in power. So we got a, a liberal approach to it meaning that concessions and the Social Security Act and the National Labor Relations Act were passed instead of a repressive fascist approach, which is really where, where the Liberty League and, and that, and they were funded, they funded militant groups all over the country and, and brown shirts, and there was you know, this huge unrest, so a huge history there. But elite policy formation doesn't change. I mean, they still are fractions. The difference today is the neoconservatives, which are reflective of what the DuPonts were in the 30s, are in power. So we don't have Roosevelt in power. We've got a very neoconservative. They still are both part of the establishment. They're still both part of the policy elites. And to understand how that network works, there's three really good books. Bill Domhoff's Who Rules America, which has been around since the 60s, but he keeps updating it and working on it. It's the perfect primer. Michael Parenti's Democracy for the Few is excellent. And for transnational understandings of where the transnational class is, Leslie Sklar from London the transnational corporate class. And this shows the networks and the power structure of how elites dominate the country. They're the ones, somewhere within those elements, that hire the mercenaries that engage in the activities that we're so concerned about, whether it's 9-11 or the Oklahoma City or, the, um, or Waco or uh, even London. We see patterns of, of who benefits and who, who, who wins in these processes. And so we're all suspect, but we also often don't know who the they are. So having a larger framework of the they is one really good way of starting out to, to, to address that. Is, you know, because we keep asking that, well, they did this and they did that, but we don't know who those are. And, and oftentimes, even the power elite don't know who they are because it's small elements operating with, with teams of, of people on the very inside that can create those kinds of operations. But they've got money, they've got resources, and they've got secrecy. And the use of power, so as we emerge as a movement, say 9-11, or addressing the voter fraud, which is, which is really the, the evidence from, for voter fraud is coming forward that, you know, we know the districts where the, the exit polls uh, vary by statistical odds of 250 million to one, were only in places where the voting machines had no paper trail. And we know the voting machines were owned by three major companies that were invested heavily by Lockheed Martin, um, Northrop Grumman, and defense contractors like SAIC and Accentua. And they're the ones that, that did that. So they've left sort of a pattern. We certainly know who those are. We know who those people are. We know how they benefited. We don't know individually who might have hacked the voting machines. We don't know individually who brought the towers down. But we can map out the power elite policy directions, and we can figure out pretty much who's winning and who's losing in that process. And we've certainly all lost in that process. So I just wanted to put that out as a framework of understanding that there is a good history. There is a good documentation of the power elite. And that as we think through what needs to be done, keeping that in context, keeping that research alive, and thinking that through becomes vital. Thanks.
Okay, now we're going to have some summaries of our campaigns and where they are stuck and what they need to move forward. We're going to start off with former state representative, Republican state representative of Oklahoma City. And I um, want to say to you, I, I was at the 10th anniversary, was, was able to go out to Oklahoma City and had such an amazing weekend. They had an amazing program. Charles and Chris Emery also. He's producing a great new movie on Oklahoma City that I hope you all pay attention to when that's released. So, Charles. Thanks, Gabriel. Well, the first thing I wanna do is just say uh, how much I really appreciate what Gabriel and everybody has done and all of you have done here. Uh, I'm just, I'm so impressed. You know, we say that a lot. But I'm, I'm really impressed with uh, this whole event. I think it's going to have a tremendous long-term effect that probably will even be hard to measure uh, as people, you know, are able to plug into the Internet and the various ways that they'll be able to uh, find out about what happened here and what all the other groups and organizations are doing. And being a Republican, uh, being from the right wing, uh, as, as that worn-out old concept uh, has been around for a long time. I don't consider myself there anymore, but what do I need? I need more of this. And I want to tell you that this has energized me more. I've already told a bunch of people this because I'm so excited about being here. This has energized me more than anything I can think of, I can remember. Uh, this has been invaluable for me, and I need more of this. I, I would like to see more of this. Gabriel mentioned being a Republican and having a father that was a Republican legislator. I didn't know we had that in common. That's pretty, pretty neat. But he is right that on the right and in the Republican Party, there is a lot of people just like all of you that are typically called left and liberal. And they're not happy with where this country's at right now. They're not happy with the Bush administration. Michael Badnarik knows all about that, uh, campaigning and politicking. And um, people, people are ready to dump Bush and in his own party. So I think there's some real good opportunity in a lot of ways as we strategize about what to do. But I think we all need to, and everybody I understand knows this, we need to continue to reach out to each other that has, have been pigeonholed being left, right, liberal, conservative, and all that business, and join together as this event and others have been working towards for such a long time. Because that's what's, I think, ultimately gonna help save this country. Where are we at with our fight? You know, 10 years ago, Oklahoma City bombing happened. We got very involved in it. Some of you were at the workshop that I did earlier with Chris Emery, and I was able to give a real quick, but a more in-depth overview of what we went through. And um, I remember back then, somebody, it might've been Gabriel or someone, was just mentioning the Kennedy assassination again. And I know when I got involved in the Oklahoma City bombing case, that came up many times, you know, the. Kennedy assassination, and, and it took 20 or 22 years before, you know, the real story started emerging. Oklahoma City, we were able to shorten that cycle down. 9-11, that cycle's been shortened quite a bit. But um, we need to keep doing these kinds of events and working together and brainstorming so that we can, you know, push it back and overcome this effort that's out there, like Peter just referred to, to continue to pull these, pull off these kinds of events and to drive the public and the mass 
you know, in a certain direction and control people. And uh, so I think it's really great to be able to network with other people. It's been real beneficial to me. Uh, the first thing I thought of when somebody said, you know, get up there and talk about what you need, I thought, well, gosh, what I need more than anything else is money, you know? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's, that's great. Everybody knows that. Everybody that's in a movement like this and is an activist like this is giving just about all you've got. You're probably broke like the rest of us or on the verge of it, and we all need more money. But as I've read recently some activists from the 60s and 70s from some real interesting material about what they did back in that time frame and what they suggested about how to organize uh, and how to bring about change, you don't really have to have money. It sure helps. And if you had some, it would be very, very helpful. But when people come together, there's a lot of things that you can do. And there's a lot of ways you can fight the enemy. And uh, again, I'm, I'm excited that we're doing that and that we're learning more ways of how to do that and how to work together to accomplish that. And um, I just hope that I'm able to continue to work within the, this movement and the, and the movements that are out there, all the organizations and groups to help uh, take our country back. So I appreciate being here this weekend and uh, wish you the, the best of uh, luck and Godspeed. Thank you. You're listening to Workshop Summations from the D.C. Truth Convergence held on July 24, 2005 at American University. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Next, I'm very proud to introduce two gentlemen who are from the USS Liberty Alliance, Peter Bolton and Tito Howard, who will speak to a greatly overlooked tragic event in world history. And... I would urge all of you, this is David Kupiak again, led the way in uh, making me aware of this issue. All of you, I highly recommend you watch a video, The Loss of Liberty, which I hope these, perhaps these gentlemen brought some, or they're available on our website of the other DVDs we distribute. So, gentlemen. Thank you. We welcome the opportunity to meet like-minded peoples fighting the same kinds of battles that we've been fighting. Ours has uh, much to do with the fight for truth, to be able to make some difference in the incredible uh, problem of media control, the working relationships between corporate America, politicians, and the press. Our specific area of concern has to do with an American ship who at the time was the, the most sophisticated intelligence ship in the world. It was called the USS Liberty. And it was on scene in the uh, Mediterranean off of El Arish in northern Sinai. And it had the ability to beam down into the Sinai Peninsula and pick up uh, individual commanders' orders uh, on either side. It was a miracle that the ship survived. It was attacked uh, by Israeli aircraft and Navy for over two hours, about the same time as the attack on Pearl Harbor. Out of a ship's company of 294, 34 were killed and 172 were wounded, about 70% casualties. The ship was the most decorated ship in the history of the American Navy, had uh, 
one Medal of Honor for the Skipper McGonagall, two Silver Stars, 21 Bronze Stars, and 206 Purple Hearts. It's created a rot in the military to those that know about it. We have in our organization 51 admirals and generals. We haven't been heard too much, but we now have just passed the threshold. We have 10,000 copies of our film out there. And it's a powerful document. When Mr. Kubiak saw it, he called me and asked if we would not become part of this conference, and I'm glad we came. We had a small group at our workshop, but um, uh, it was a good group, and, and, and I think we made some contacts with, with the, those that were there. And Peter Bolton is, was recently retired, well, 2001, I guess, from our State Department, and he knows that perspective well, and he'll speak in just a moment. What got me into the Liberty story, I was um, in the Middle East, based in Beirut, uh, doing documentary films and covering uh, the war in Lebanon, some other places for Dutch and Swedish television. And in 1975, I came to the States, and I had a meeting with uh, Admiral Thomas Moore, who uh, was one of America's great heroes. He died in February of 04, and at his funeral, we had Henry Kissinger, six secretaries of the Navy, Colin Powell was there, Paul Wolfowitz was there, some real neocons were there. Uh, but one of the interesting things about that funeral is that they had a flyover, four F-14 Tomcats that were named for the man in the box. And uh, in 1975, five months after he stepped down from his second term as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Moore told me that the Israeli attack on that ship was premeditated and deliberate. And one of the favorite, my favorite lines in the film, I wrote it about three o'clock in the morning, is a very true statement, is that never before in the history of the American military has a military board of inquiry ignored the evidence produced by American military eyewitnesses and the uh, word of their attackers was taken on faith. It's an outrage. We uh, should treat anybody that attacks Americans anywhere and kills them uh, as an enemy, not as a friend. And we have rewarded the state of Israel since that attack with more aid than we've given to all of black Africa and Latin America combined. There needs to be a real board of inquiry in 1967, a very hurriedly put together board of inquiries put together under the order of Admiral John Sidney McCain, Jr., the senator's father, and at that time was the sickest number, the commander-in-chief, U.S. Navy, Europe, which encompassed the Mediterranean. It's one of the greatest scandals in our country, and because the attackers were our allies, the Israelis doesn't excuse the fact of the attack there was a recall of aircraft from, we had two large carriers at the time in 67, the Saratoga and the America. And Joe Tully, the skipper of the Saratoga, had 12 planes in the air after seven minutes after he first got the garbled message from the Liberty 
The Israelis said it was a case of mistaken identity, that they thought it was the Egyptian horse freighter, the El Qasir. The El Qasir was um, about a fourth the size of the Liberty and looked absolutely nothing like the Liberty. We need to hold our friends and everybody else up to the same standards. There has never been an honest investigation into the attack, and your fight for truth is our fight for the same truth. And we support you, and we hope that you will support us as well. Uh, we do have a, a film called The Loss of Liberty as a double meaning for us. The ship's doctor is our narrator. This man saved at least 41 American lives. He had a bullet wound, he had a broken right kneecap, he had a 16-inch scar back of his left calf. He had a burn and he had 11 pieces of shrapnel in his abdomen, which he kept together with a life jacket for 28 consecutive hours while he, said, while he saved American lives and limbs. I want to turn the mic over now to uh, Peter Bolton, a staunch ally of ours and, uh, and one of our tireless workers. We're the only non-admirals or generals there. I'm even ashamed to mention what my rank was when I was in service. Anyway, please welcome Peter Bolton. Thank you very much. Let me mention that State Department did a survey of the USS Liberty incident in 2004, and they came back with the statement that it hadn't been proved, nothing had really been proved or settled, but that Israel was responsible for this attack. Now, why would we talk to someone like you? Because you're here about cover-ups, about lies, about people being put in jeopardy for cover-ups. 37 years ago, when the men of the Liberty who'd been shot tried to tell their story to their superiors in the Navy investigation at that time, they were allowed to tell the story in person, but then they were told to shut up. Never talk to it, talk about this to anyone else again on pain of investigation, jail, or worse. And this is a quote from Liberty Survivors. What we might ask you to do is simply keep your eyes peeled. When you see something about the Liberty, maybe you can help us, maybe you can give a favorable word to someone where you are. But obviously we're all looking at the same thing. We're looking at deception, a cover-up, at government, which is trying to soften, keep harsh reality from our people. The issue involves, did we ever investigate the USS Liberty incident? Did the government ever do a thorough investigation? I'm going to give, read you a testimony indicating that we didn't at the time, and we state that it's never been investigated properly since. What we're asking for is for support of a new open investigation through Congress that would finally allow the truth about this event to come out. Now, if you were standing there being shot at, torpedoed, had your life rafts shot out of the water, possibility that the ship would go down, you're being raided by Mirage jets, Israeli Mirage jets. What you didn't know is that two American carriers had sent planes off to your aid. These planes that were sent for your assistance were called back. 
They were called back by Washington, and Tito will give you more details of that. While our men were standing there getting shot at, bombed, and napalmed, while their antenna were being knocked out, American help, which had been on the way, was stopped, turned around, and those planes went back to the carrier. From that point on, as near as we can tell, 25 Americans were killed. Now, no wonder they want to cover this up. What politician, what military leader wants to admit that this happened? And the job of people like us is to bring this out, let it become known. There was a Captain Ward Boston, who was a judge, advocate general captain at that time. He was in charge of the investigation for the Naval Office in London, and he forwarded a copy of the investigation to Washington. And he was under orders to deal with this investigation in a certain way. And here's what he said in a recent affidavit. For more than 30 years, I have remained silent on the topic of the USS Liberty. However, recent attempts to rewrite history compel me to share the truth. In June of 1967, while serving as captain in the Judge Advocates General Department, I was assigned a senior legal counsel for the Navy's Court of Inquiry into the brutal attack on the USS Liberty. The late Admiral Kidd and I were given only one week to gather evidence for the Navy's official investigation. Despite the short amount of time we were given, we gathered a vast amount of evidence, including hours of heartbreaking testimony from the young survivors. The evidence was clear. Both Kidd and I believed with certainty that this attack, which killed 34 American sailors and injured 172 others, was a deliberate effort to sink an American ship and murder its entire crew. I am certain that the Israeli pilots that undertook the attack, as well as their superiors who had ordered the attack, were aware that the ship was American. I saw the flag, which had visibly identified the ship as American, riddled with bullet holes and heard testimony that made it clear the Israelis intended there be no survivors. Skipping forward, I'm outraged at the efforts of the apologist for Israel in this country to claim that this attack was a case of mistaken identity. I know from personal conversations I had with Admiral Kidd that President Lyndon Johnston, Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, ordered him to conclude that the attack was a case of mistaken identity. Mistaken identity. That is, they didn't know they were attacking an American ship, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. This is an affidavit Captain Boston gave on October 9th, 2003. What was the I don't know. The Israelis have always said that it was mistaken identity, that they thought it was an Egyptian ship, so there's no way of saying what their motive is officially. One might speculate. I would rather choose not to speculate and rather than look at the idea that it happened. I don't know why I could give you four or five possible reasons. Well, what was eliminated was the most sophisticated intelligence gathering ship in the world at that time. And this was right in the middle of the 67 war. And there's a possibility that we hadn't really given permission for the Israelis to go after Syria. But see, these possibilities are not the issue. The issue is, that Americans were under fire, that our forces were sent to save them, and they were called back. Let me let Tito finish this off a little bit. And thank you for your attention. Well, I, 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 thanks, Tito.
I would like to respond to any questions you might have. This is a story most Americans have never heard of. It's an absolute outrage what happened. And it's time for us to tell the American people the truth of what's happening in the Middle East and certainly what happened on that day when our so-called ally killed so many Americans and our president ordered Larry Geis, the carrier division commander, to recall our planes that were sent to aid Liberty while it was still under attack. It's outrageous. A question, you, sir. Well, I think this was um, June of 67. He had won his first election in 64, Johnson. He was preparing for the 68 election. He felt he needed American Jewish support to win that election. I think that was his motive. But the thing that bothers me most about this attack is that the people on board the Liberty, the only time the Israelis have ever used unmarked plane was in, planes was in its attack on the Liberty. And the people on the Liberty didn't know who was attacking them. How in the hell did Johnson and McNamara know? <laughs> and the other thing that's really bad is if they want us to believe their argument, they thought it was the Egyptian horse freighter, uh, 2,100 tons versus 10,000 tons. If they want us to believe that story, why did the attacking Israeli planes jam all five American emergency radio channels? Okay. Are you suggesting they knew before the attack? I'm saying it's certainly a possibility. I don't say that in my film because I can't prove it yet. But in our new version of the film, we're going to add some, some interesting things to you, sir. Why do you think the Israelis attacked an American ship in international waters in broad daylight? America's most sophisticated intelligence ship. Because the USS Liberty was gathering intelligence and passing it through MI6 in Cyprus and giving it uh, to the Egyptians uh, during the Let me disprove that very, very simply. By the 8th of June, the war, the 67 war, was already over. There was no military reason for us to do anything like that or for the Israelis to do anything. 80% of the Egyptian Air Force was destroyed on the ground in a sneak attack on the morning of May of, of uh, June the 5th. At, by the afternoon of the 5th of June, the war was over. There was no fighting anywhere near the liberty. I know that's the position of a lot of pro-Israeli people in this country. This is an outrage against my country our flag and our military. I feel very strongly about it. My father and seven others are in Arlington, just down the road. I'm sorry. Is there another question? Uh, uh, I believe James Bamford in the Puzzle Palace wrote about this. No, no, not the Puzzle Palace. That was his first book. The Body of Secrets was the second book. And yeah, Bamford's his book, his paragraph called Blood, is about the liberty. And he was the producer for the Peter Jennings news uh, program for nine years. He left them and he wrote Body of Secrets. I recommend all of you to buy that book. Listen, we don't want to take up any more of your time. We really appreciate the response and we look forward to working with you in the future. It's time that the people in this country took over control of their own government. Thank you very much.
You're listening to Workshop Summations from the D.C. Truth Convergence held on July 24, 2005 at American University. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Next, we're very proud to have addressing reclaiming honest elections, the 2004 Libertarian presidential candidate and co-sponsor of the Ohio Recall, Michael Banderick. Good afternoon. I'm uh, very thankful to have been invited here. I'm pleased to see so many people out on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, you are obviously dedicated to your causes. I've been asked to uh, speak to you for a little bit about um, uh, election fraud. And um, as you may or may not know, the United States is suffering from electile dysfunction. We keep electing members to Congress who are unable or unwilling to stand up for the Constitution. And it's a very embarrassing problem that most people don't want to talk about. Um, I, I haven't done a, a long, in-depth analysis, but I've, I've kind of broken the problem down into three different areas. Uh, first of all, the ballot manipulation itself. Uh, second, the media bias against uh, anyone other than the Democrats or the Republicans. And uh, third, something that I refer to just generally as voter superstition. Um, first of all, Joseph Stalin once said that it's not who votes that counts, it's who counts the votes. And clearly, under Joseph Stalin, there was no political dissent. You know, it was either, you know, you had your opportunity to vote for Joseph Stalin or you disappeared in the middle of the night. Um, I don't necessarily think things are quite that bad yet, but I've seen a bumper sticker during this last campaign, which I think does succinctly summarize the situation that we have currently in the United States. And the bumper sticker said, die bold, making machines that vote so you don't have to. <laughs> now, I, I don't know, you know, what everyone's political stripes are, but Everyone who takes the time to go to the polls to vote does so with kind of the implicit understanding that the election is going to reflect the overall views of those of us who have taken the time to cast a ballot. And if we don't have that security, knowing that whatever our differences are and whoever we've chosen to vote for, that the results are not accurate, then all of us share in the concern that our government is out of control. Now, the uh, electronic voting machines caused me a great deal of concern. I've been a computer programmer for longer than I care to admit. And I assert that if you allow me to write the software and keep that software a secret, then I will be able to tell you who is going to win and by what percentage of margin before the polls even open. I mean, this is really a no-brainer. If, I mean, I have no problem with doing an electronic count as long as there is a paper trail. I mean, you can't go to an ATM machine 
without getting a paper receipt of the transaction. You can go to the grocery store and buy a package of gum and they'll give you a receipt for the few cents that you've exchanged. You, so you can't tell me that we can't design these machines to give every single voter a paper trail so that we can ultimately document how the voters uh, have chosen and to uh, verify that after the elections. Regardless of how you have voted, I think that you should be outraged at the fact that the results are, n are not honest. I mean, none of us would even go to the Super Bowl if we thought the game was fixed. You know, when you, when you watch the, the football players, if somebody, you know, if the catches the ball, we're all watching the replay to see if the, you know, the toes were just inside or outside the line because, by God, football has rules and, you know, you've got to play by the rules. If we're going to do that with football, the least we can do is that is with our politics and get the rules right. Now, David Cobb of the Green Party and I developed a friendship over the campaign. We were uh, willing to debate each other several times uh, in alternate party debates. David Cobb and I also tried to attend the presidential debate in St. Louis, and David Cobb and I were arrested, handcuffed, and taken to jail. Interesting story is the police officer opened the door of the van and said, which one of you is a presidential candidate? <laughs> and my response was, well, we are both presidential candidates. We are at a presidential debate, and you have us in handcuffs. Can you explain that to me? He says, let me get back to you on that. So after the election, uh, David and I joined forces again, specifically in Ohio. Uh, we demanded a recount. The, the original recount was requested not because David and I had any wild imaginings that we were going to change the, the outcome of the vote significantly, but there had been an overwhelming uh, number of anecdotal stories that the voting machines had changed the, uh, the, you know, the result. The person voted one way, and before they were able to push finish it, it you know, the machine had switched their vote. Um, and again, we decided that we would ask for the recount to go through and find discrepancies, not necessarily to, to get either David or I elected. Um, however, in the process of doing the recount, we were able to uncover hardcore evidence, documented evidence that the Secretary of State of Ohio and many of the uh, county commissioners for the elections were definitely obstructing justice and uh, uh, fraudulently uh, doing the, um, the recount itself. And so we do have a uh, lawsuit that is still pending in Ohio. I don't know what the result is, but the, the, the purpose of that, again, was to demonstrate the fraud for the American people so that they know that the people who are pretending to be your elected officials are, are doing anything uh, but doing that by your will. Interestingly enough, during the campaign, most of the people who interviewed me would allege that by running as a third party candidate, I was stealing votes from Bush or Kerry. And considering the things that are going on in Ohio, I think that's pretty ironic. <laughs> we have um, 
thousands and thousands of military in Iraq, presumably fighting for fair and open elections in that country. Um, I think one of the possible solutions would be to bring our military home so they could fight for free and open elections here in the United States. You're listening to Workshop Summations from the D.C. Truth Convergence held on July 24, 2005 at American University. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The second aspect of this uh, problem, I'd say, was media bias. Um, while I confess that local uh, media outlets and newspapers uh, did give me fairly you know, even coverage and, and sometimes even complimentary coverage, the national media basically d- did a blackout of all of the third-party candidates that I can think of other than um, Ralph Nader. Uh, David Cobb and I actually got arrested He had two presidential candidates from two legitimate political parties attempting to attend a uh, presidential debate. And the only place that was uh, broadcast or notified was on our respective websites. Um, Somehow, I think that would have been news. The the other examples I had were uh, specifically Fox News and, in particular, Bill O'Reilly. I had been invited to be on the O'Reilly Factor And on the way to New York City, we were three hours from the studio, we were called and told that the uh, interview had been canceled uh, because they had late breaking news, which turned out to be a replay of uh, some old Lacey Peterson murder uh, information. On a second um, opportunity, Bill O'Reilly had announced publicly that he would be willing to debate anyone on the issue of the Patriot Act. My staff called within 20 minutes indicating that Mr. Bednarik would be happy to debate you about the Patriot Act, and uh, that opportunity was rejected. And finally, we had um, Bill O'Reilly was attempting to interview uh, people from the Muslim American community, uh, and the idea was to have one Muslim American who was pro-Bush and a second Muslim American who was anti-Bush. And we had a uh, a libertarian who was on the way to the studio and was told that he was allowed to be on the air but was not allowed to mention my name. He could not mention the candidate that he was planning to vote for. And so he turned around and decided not to be on the program. So Bill O'Reilly had to scramble and find another Muslim American who was willing to be, you know, anti-Bush on the program. And they made the assumption that if he was anti-Bush, he was necessarily pro-Kerry. And so on live television, uh, O'Reilly asked this person, well, you know, you're going to vote for Kerry? He goes, no, I'm voting for Michael Badnarik. And <laughs> Bill O'Reilly's expression was, uh, was really priceless. Um, yeah. and, and then finally, Fox News did choose to interview me. I, they had me drive someplace into a studio for a five-minute interview which was really just a setup for the final question, which was, have you ever been to Iraq? And I responded that no, I hadn't. And the conclusion was, well, if you've never been to Iraq, then all of your points of view on Iraq are invalid. And the, the TV camera went dead before I could respond, I don't have to go to Iraq. I watch Fox News, which is fair and balanced. <laughs> <laughs> 
But as much of, of a problem as the, the voting machines and the corruption in Washington in general, I think the, the key to the problem are the American voters themselves. We, the people, are kind of the source of the problem by virtue of the fact that we have been allowed, we have allowed ourselves to believe a lot of fallacies that we have been told. Uh, the most common that I'm familiar with is the wasted vote syndrome. Um, I wish I had a political contribution for everybody who told me, Michael, I really like you as a candidate, but I can't vote for you because I don't want to waste my vote. The only wasted vote is when you vote for a candidate who's going to raise your taxes, vote for unconstitutional laws like the Patriot Act, vote to send your sons and daughters into foreign wars that we should not be in. The only wasted vote is when you do not vote your conscience and vote for someone who will try to defend the Constitution. The end result is that if you choose to vote for the lesser of two evils, even if your candidate wins, you still get evil. And that's the bottom line. So let me, a lot of what the media gives out, as you well know, is untrue. And from a third party candidate's point of view, a lot of what is broadcast about the Libertarian Party is also untrue. Um, people think that because I am a libertarian that I'm necessary a, necessarily a liberal. And although the Libertarian Party does have liberal positions on some issues, we also have conservative positions on other issues. And so people are really confused because they can't decide if we're schizophrenic, liberal, or conservative. The result, the real truth is that we are for liberty. We are for everyone's individual rights. We have this crazy idea that the Constitution actually means something and that the Bill of Rights is not a list of optional choices where you can pick the ones that you like and scratch out the ones that you don't like. So um, I would like you, that they've, they've told me that they want me to give you some action items, things that you can do. And what I would like you to do is to find out more, first, about, first of all, about the Constitution. Um, I have written a book called Good to be King. We have 285 million kings and queens in the United States, and we need to start asserting some of our authority. Um, find out more about the Constitution, what it really says. We, the people, ordain and establish the Constitution. We invented our government in 1789. Therefore, they work for us, not the other way around. Um, I invite you to find out more about the Libertarian Party before you jump to conclusions um, and visit lp.org to find out what our positions really are. And, and I think that you may agree with us uh, to a much greater extent than you may think you uh, do right now. Um, secondly, you need to continue to make your voices heard in venues much like this, but also throughout the year, calling the talk radio shows, calling the newspapers, writing uh, letters to the editor. 
I know that that takes time. I know that there are other things that you could be doing with your time. But liberty is incredibly important. And finally, the most important thing that you can do when they do give us the opportunity to vote is to please vote your conscience. Vote for someone. Please do not vote against the other candidate. Thank you very much. Okay, two brief questions. If you did anything about the 9-11 issue in your campaign, in the, in the following framework, after the election, Senator Bob Kerry thought that Senator John Kerry had lost the election because he could have made a case of incompetence and non-feasance against Bush, even within the boundaries of the official version, because Bush didn't do anything. He was getting all these warnings and he never called a single meeting, and therefore that that could have been used to defeat Bush. wonder what you did with 9-11 as an issue on police state or, or anything like that. I did not do anything specifically about 9-11. I was busy trying to get ballot access so that people could presumably vote for me. Um, I was a dark horse candidate uh, which means that in May of last year, when I attended my own national convention, half the libertarians didn't know who I was. <laughs> and um, and they, they startled and surprised me by actually nominating me. And so I had... <laughs> um, you have to be very careful what you wish for. And And so I was really... Um, coming up to speed as fast as I can to just put a staff together to, so I can go out and do interviews. I was doing the best that I could just to get my voice heard and let people know that there was another choice. So I, I didn't have enough time or resources to specifically focus on that issue. Any other questions? Uh, yes. Mr. Patrick, I'd just like to thank you for um, you know, being among the few candidates together with David Kopp uh, to expose um, what I take to be the Ohio fraud that most people here as well. So thank you for that. Um, I, I've had two quick burning questions. One is, what do you think of proportional representation um, as a means of making every vote count? Um, and the second is, given you know that you're here at the emergency truth convergence, um, what is your opinion on the contention that uh, the 9-11 official story is a giant fraud? And uh, if so, I'm also wondering at what point do you think um, the founding documents of our country call for more than just voting, but call for us to abolish uh, or alter an emphasis on the abolish uh, to actually um, have a second American revolution? I personally am in favor of proportional representation. Um, I think if we can get uh, you know, the votes to actually count, we'll have some representation. Then we can work on proportional representation. <laughs> I don't know that any of the voted votes really counted. And one of the things that I do is I teach an eight-hour class on the Constitution. If you'd like more information on that, my website is constitutionpreservation.org. And, and I do point to the Declaration of Independence, which says that when any form of government becomes destructive of your liberty, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. been listening to speakers from the D.C. Truth Convergence wrap-up session on July 24, 2005. 
The DC Emergency Truth Convergence was a three-day event that included a press conference at the National Press Club, a rally in Lafayette Park, workshops at American University, and a strategy summit. Organizers of the Truth Convergence included David Kubiak of 9-11 Truth, Janice Matthews and Jan Hoyer of the 9-11 Visibility Project, Gabriel Day of 9-11 Share the Truth, Charles Key, former Oklahoma State Representative and Chair of the Oklahoma City Bombing Investigation Committee, and activist Dave Schlesinger. Audio provided by Hamook, Ethan Allen, and Ken Jenkins. Visit www.911truthemergency.us for more information about this and future events. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper.